This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. Maybe seated. My name's Will. I'm a youth and college pastor here, and it's so good to be with you this morning. So earlier this fall, I watched, as many of you did, the, uh, the funeral for Queen Elizabeth. And I got to tell you, I did not know what we were missing, okay? It had me rethinking July 4th. And um, I hope that's not offensive, but I just, I thought, man, I've been living my whole life without a queen, and that would be pretty great. You know, to me, kings and queens, they're like the stuff of fairy tales, right? You know, it's, you know, or like ancient history, they're kind of irrelevant for our day. To me, like kings and queens, this is, this is just how like nations get tourists to come and visit them, right? And, and click on articles about their nation. Um, being a royal was like being a celebrity and you just didn't have to do anything to earn that celebrity. But what I understood as, as I watched this, the funeral, was that uh, for the British, the queen was much more than just a celebrity. But, but she was a figurehead. She was a representative. In a certain sense, she was the whole nation embodied in one person. She was a representative, uh, you know, of her people. And, and I thought about how different this is to us. Like, we don't think of our presidents this way. You know, like I've heard um, some folks say in the past, you know, talking about the, whoever the sitting president is, they say, well, not my president. You know, because they're not the one that, that they voted for. You know, we opt in with our associations, but, but for the Brits, I mean, the, the queen is theirs. She's like a fact. She belongs to them. She's, she's their representative. And I share all of this because today we are celebrating the feast of Christ the King. It's the last Sunday in the church year. Next week begins a new church calendar year with the beginning of Advent. And today we celebrate that Christ the King is our representative in the heavenly places. That because Jesus shares our humanity, he is the representative for the whole holy nation of Israel, the Israel of God that we, many of us, have been grafted into. But not only is he our representative in the heavenly places, but he invites us to join with him I mean, in this, in this funeral procession, you saw, you know, the other members of the royal family, you know, kind of processing along as, as the, the casket made its way, you know, to the final resting place for the queen. And there were all these onlookers looking on to the royalty, but, but Jesus actually represents us so that we can become royalty with him, so that we can become part of the royal family, this royal priesthood. I mean, so that we can become um, participants, princes, and, and princesses reigning underneath our elder brother, the King Jesus. I mean, it's, it sounds silly. It sounds like a fairy tale, but it's true. In King Jesus, you and I become royal as well. And that actually means something unfortunate because no royal life is complete without scandal. No royal life is complete without scandal. And in our gospel text this morning from the Gospel of Luke, you see that scandal followed Jesus' life all the way to his final hours. And it's not a scandal that he was trying to avoid. It was a scandal that he willingly accepted, and it's actually a scandal that he calls us to take up as well. 
On Christ the King Sunday, we remember that the way of the king was the way of the cross. And the way of the cross is the way of scandal, but it is also the way of life. The way of the cross is the way of, the, of scandal, but it is also the way of life. And so this morning, the three scandals that I want us to reflect on are these. His scandalous death, his scandalous company, the friends that he welcomes with him, and finally, his scandalous mercy. And so if you'd like to follow along in your pew Bibles, this is, our text is on page 884. His scandalous death, his scandalous company, and his scandalous mercy. Let's begin with his scandalous death. You know, 20 years ago, The Passion of the Christ came out. I'm sure many, maybe most in this room saw Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ. And it's a really well-done film, of course, but it's not for the faint of heart, right? It depicts the, the events of the crucifixion in all of their gory detail. And Gibson it focused his experience on the, on the physical experience of the crucifixion, the suffering, the brutality, the inhumanity, the blood, the flesh. And I mention all of that simply to say this, that that is not how the gospel writers depict the crucifixion. Not because those things didn't happen, but that's not what they emphasize. So in the Passion of the Christ, there's this, you know, scourging scene that feels like it goes on forever. But that scourging gets one quick verse in Luke 23, verse 15. And Pilate says, I will therefore punish and release him. And the, the awful walk to Golgotha, where, where Jesus and Simon the Cyrene carry the cross, that gets more verses in Luke's text, but those verses are primarily about Jesus' conversation with the women who are mourning as he makes this journey. And the crucifixion itself, the nails in his hands and feet and hoisted up on this awful cross, that gets just three spare words in 2333. They crucified him. So it's not the physical brutality that the gospel writers emphasize. What is it? It's the shame. The emphasis of the gospel writers is on the shame of the cross, the mockery, the hatred, the cruelty, the bullying, the lying. That's what the gospel writers emphasize. The death of Jesus was scandalous because the cross was such a shameful way to die. Shameful especially for a king, reserved for the worst members of society. Look, look at uh, verse 34. This begins just kind of a litany of shame. Verse 34, he's hanging, Jesus is hanging on the cross. He's helpless. And before him, they're casting lots for his clothing, his last earthly possessions. The people stood by watching, many of them spectating. You know, they've come to see and be entertained by evil men getting what evil men deserve. And others are watching passively, you know, helplessly, looking on as their friend is humiliated. The rulers scoffed at him, the ones with authority and with power and perhaps intellect and education, also mocking him just as Herod had mocked him earlier. 
They, they take the memory of Jesus' acts of love and mercy and they twist them and use them to make fun of him. They say, he saved others. He saved others. Let him save himself. You know, they take his words about his identity and they twist those. They say, you know, if he is the Messiah of God, the chosen one, the soldiers play a joke on him. Instead of offering him water, they offer him, you know, sour wine, this vinegar, and they tease him with the sign that somebody else hung above his head. If you're the king of the Jews, like that sign says you are, save yourself. Verse 39, even the criminal beside him, the worst of the worst, the lowest of the low, even the criminal beside him finds a reason to put him down. And Luke notes it three times, the same mocking that Jesus receives on the cross. Are you not the Messiah? Save yourself. The way of the cross, the way of the king, was the way of shame. Not just physical pain, but the pain of being ostracized and pushed out and scorned and mocked. The pain of being deeply misunderstood by the very ones he came to help. And what have our readings in Luke the past two weeks, what have they taught us? There's been a, a the similar theme in both, both of them. It's that the experience of being shamed is actually normative in the Christian life. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus says in the Beatitudes, Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil. Blessed are you when they do these things. For so they treated the prophets who were before you. The invitation to follow King Jesus, to become part of the royal family, is to some degree an invitation into shame. And there's no getting around that. The scandal of the cross is that it was a shameful way to die. And the difficult word is that Jesus calls on each of us to take up our cross as well. It doesn't matter what culture you live in, there is always going to be a certain amount of shame and being misunderstood that comes with following Jesus, no matter where you live, because it will always put you at odds with certain values in that culture. So speaking of, of our American culture, if you follow Jesus, it will put you at odds with these values around materialism because King Jesus will not allow you to be satisfied or content with selfishness. He won't allow you to do that. It will put you at odds with kind of the political, tribal nature of, of just social discourse right now, because King Jesus will not allow you to hate those you disagree with, even those you disagree with vehemently. Following Jesus will put you at odds with these cultural values around pluralism and, and relativism that kind of all paths lead the same way because King Jesus will continue to speak to you that he alone is the way, the truth, and the life. And why would you, why would, why would I, why would any of us choose to stand out in these ways where our peers would look at us, maybe curious or maybe worse, maybe in a mocking posture? Why would you choose to identify yourself as a follower of Jesus? Why would you choose the shame of being misunderstood by others? And the answer that Jesus gives 
is because of joy. Because of the joy that lies ahead. In the Beatitudes, he says, Rejoice when these things happen to you, for great is your reward in heaven. And in Hebrews chapter 12, the writer says, Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from, from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. The way of the cross is the way of shame, but it is also the way of life. And that's because what matters most, what matters most is the king's opinion of you. Because one day you will meet him and you will answer to him, and he will reward you. He will reward you because you were not ashamed to be associated with him and to put your life in his hands by taking up your cross in obedience. He will reward you for following him even into shame. Let's talk about the second scandal in this passage, the scandal of the company that Jesus welcomed into his life. All four gospel writers talk about the, the two criminals that were crucified next to Jesus. And in Roman times, crucifixion is reserved for the worst of all criminals. I mean, these are, these are people who commit high treason against the state, who are, who are guilty of crimes that, that threaten to disrupt the social order, which gives you something of an idea of the threat that Jesus and his ministry posed at that time. But Luke is the only gospel writer who records these two different responses of the criminals beside him. As we saw earlier in verse 39, one of those criminals voices the same taunts as the others. Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other responds differently. And Luke has this pattern in, in both Luke and Acts of showing that often it's the, the most marginalized, the weakest in society who most clearly see Jesus for who he really is. And that happens here. I mean, with utter clarity, the other criminal beside Jesus acknowledges three things. First, his own guilt. Look at verse 40. But he rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we, indeed, justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. Whatever this man had done, whatever reason he had received this awful punishment, he recognizes that he is guilty. And secondly, he recognizes the innocence of Jesus. But this man, this man has done nothing wrong. And thirdly, he recognizes that somehow God is going to vindicate the man at his side. And so he says to him directly, Jesus, and who knows where he learned his name? I mean, maybe it, was just, maybe it was just from the crowds shouting. Who knows when he learned his name? But he says, Jesus, remember me. Remember me when you come into your kingdom, when you are vindicated 
by God in heaven. And Jesus responds, I will. Done. Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. I mean, isn't this astounding? This criminal is not innocent. He is not good. He is not a good person. He has done things by his own admission that were horrible enough to deserve crucifixion. But he pleads with Jesus, remember me. And without hesitation, Jesus says, I will. Truly, you will be with me in paradise this very day. And Jesus says that to anyone who calls on his name. Anyone. No matter how ashamed of yourself you are, Jesus is not ashamed of you. The king of the universe willingly accepts into his family, his royal family, the worst of the worst in a way that is scandalous to a world that loves to divide the good from the bad. Jesus is not scandalized by the company he keeps. He delights to befriend those who call on his name. And if this is true, then how ready should we be in the church of God to welcome one another? Amen? I mean, you spend time in the church and you realize this is a strange group of people, right? I would not, I would not choose to regularly get together with this particular group, <laughs> you know, on a regular basis, and yet here we are, Sunday after Sunday. Why? Because Jesus has chosen to welcome us into his royal family. And that's why we ought to welcome one another into our lives, to seek to see and value in one another what Jesus sees and values in each of us. He is not scandalized by the company he keeps. And now thirdly, his scandalous mercy. Luke is the only gospel writer who records these incredible words. Verse 34. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And what, what so strikes me about this phrase is not just that he would forgive those who hurt him. I mean, that's hard enough, but he prays it while they're hurting him. Notice the placement of this verse. Father, forgive them. And then he goes through the, Luke records the, the litany of ways that Jesus is being wronged, even in that very moment. He's praying for them. He's forgiving them while he's on the cross, while they're shaming him, while they're mocking him. I mean, it's hard enough to forgive somebody after they hurt you, but to do it in the moment takes special grace. To take that hurt that you feel and give it to the Lord and trust that, that Jesus the King will be their judge. You don't have to be. To take that hardness of heart that you feel so deeply every time you remember the way that you've been wronged and offer that to Jesus. Lord Jesus, soften me. I forgive them. I don't hold this sin against them. This is scandalous in our culture because forgiveness can feel unjust. It can feel wrong. 
Uh, it, it can feel like avoiding or ignoring the serious harm or hurt that another person has caused. But that's not what forgiveness is. Forgiveness actually requires that we recognize specific ways that we've been hurt. Because otherwise, what is there to forgive? Forgiveness requires that we name a wrong, that we see a wrong that's been done. And then we offer that to the Lord and we release the other person of their debt. It's not about avoidance. And it also doesn't mean that there can't be consequences for their actions. I mean, reconciliation is a two-way street. And so for a relationship to go back to what it was, that would depend on certain circumstances of the other person recognizing what they've done wrong. And, you know, of coming to terms with that and this conversation about whether that relationship should go back to the way it was. So that kind of reconciliation is not necessary for forgiveness. You don't need two people to forgive somebody. It's, it's just yourself and the Lord. You can always forgive no matter the actions of the other person no matter whether they choose to seek reconciliation or not. You can always choose to not hold that sin against them because King Jesus has not held your sin against you. And there are, there are so many beautiful examples of what forgiveness looks like in our culture, and they stand out because they're so surprising. I mean, one writer said, we've just totally lost a narrative for what this is supposed to look like, what forgiveness is supposed to look like in our world. And so these examples shine brightly, but this morning I wanted you to hear an example that you could relate to. And so I've invited my, my friend Jen Schindler. She's a fellow parishioner here at Res a few years or she's been a, a youth leader with me for several years. We've been in a small group together, and, and Jen has experienced just this incredible transformation of her heart as she has learned to forgive and experience the freedom that Jesus offers her. And so I wanted you to hear her testimonies that you could be encouraged, that you could have a testimony like this too. And so would you just please give a hand for Jen and thank her for being willing to share with us. Good morning. I found that the closer I am to someone, the more power they have to hurt me. And I've also found that the more someone hurts me, the harder it is to forgive them. For me, the person who has been the hardest to forgive has been my mom. I've spent my whole life struggling with my mom. Some of my earliest memories include mom having a man over at night while my dad was away, mom disappearing for days without word about where she was, and mom yelling at me and calling me names. Things did not improve as I grew older. I found my mom to be untrustworthy, unreliable, an inflictor of mental and emotional wounds, and one who is unable to understand or nurture her strong-willed third daughter. She wasn't a good mom. She didn't want to work outside the home, but she also didn't care for us inside the home either. As my dad worked multiple jobs to make ends meet, and they still never seemed to, my siblings and I were often left to fend for ourselves. I couldn't go to my mom if I was sad, hurt, or in trouble, and often my sadness, hurt, and trouble were caused by her. My childhood was spent screaming on the inside, look at me, notice me, love me, see me for who I am. Instead, I felt unwanted, unloved, and unsupported by one of the people who was supposed to love me most in the world. And in the midst of feeling unloved, I also carried tremendous guilt, thinking that if I were a better daughter, then she would love me more. 
Things got worse when my dad died when I was 18. The buffer was gone and my mom shut down. We constantly ran out of basic necessities because my mom wouldn't remember to go to the store. I used to hide toilet paper in my bedroom, so when we ran out, there was a secret stash we could draw from. She was also on the hunt for husband number two. I know from a biblical standpoint, she was free to marry again, but it felt like it was the ultimate betrayal. She didn't treat my dad well in his life, and now she was disregarding him altogether by marrying someone else too soon after he died. Over the next 20 years, the hurt for my mom compounded by her continual lack of involvement in our lives. She didn't support or engage with my sister when she had cancer, and she was a non-entity in the lives of her seven amazing grandchildren who would have given her love and affection openly and freely. I would ask myself, how can I forgive her when she continues to hurt us? How can I honor her when she doesn't even behave the way a mom should? How can I honor her while not allowing her to manipulate me? I started praying, help me see her through your eyes. This helped because I began to see things in her own childhood that probably influenced the way she behaved as an adult. I began to see the hurt and lack of affection she experienced from her parents. It helped, but it didn't heal. On November 21st, 2020, during spiritual direction, I began sobbing and cried out, I desperately want to love her and honor her, but I don't know how. And my spiritual director, with her calm, quiet voice, asked, what does the Lord have to say about that? I got a picture of Jesus wrapping his arms around my mom and enveloping her. And he said, I know you don't know how to love her. I know you don't know how to care for her, but I do. I felt peace in that moment as though Jesus was acknowledging my lack and filling the need himself. And I was able to release my mom to Jesus' care. Four days later, unexpectedly and without any indication it was coming, my mom died. Most of the work of forgiveness, the deep, soul-healing forgiveness, has occurred since that time. I've experienced a lot of death in my life, but my mom's death undid me. I couldn't shake the sadness or the guilt, and I knew I wasn't going to just get over it. Last fall, I started taking medication and going to counseling. My counselor was able to help me acknowledge that my mom's behaviors were not loving motherly behaviors, and that my reactions were normal and appropriate as her daughter. She helped me reframe childhood memories from a more accurate and healthy perspective. As I began to realize that I wasn't a horrible daughter, I had the capacity to see my mom with compassion. I now realize my mom couldn't see me. It wasn't a conscious choice. I now realize that she loved me and did the best job she could, just as I loved her and did the best job I could. She never gave me what I wanted or needed from her, but she gave me what she had. I've spent the past two years wrestling through pain, grief, and guilt. The hurt inflicted by my mom is still very real. None of it erased after she died. But I'm working through a continual process of actively, actively choosing to forgive my mom while acknowledging the pain of the past. I'm holding forgiveness and the reality of life with my mom hand in hand. I'm also working to let go of the guilt I've carried about our relationship. It is a continual tug of war to feel wounded and then forgive, feel wounded and then forgive. But the more I am able to acknowledge the hurt and still choose to forgive, the more free I become. And in the same way that Jesus stepped in to care for my mom when I couldn't, Jesus also stepped in to care for me when my mom couldn't. Through my life, God, in his consistent pursuit of me, has provided godly women to walk alongside me and fill the gaps left by my mom. 
I learned to not find my value from my mom. I found it in Christ as he spoke and continues to speak words of love over me as his daughter and reminds me of the inheritance I have as one of his children. Protection, provision, and preparation. God has provided the inheritance that my mom could not. Would you all just pray with me? Lord Jesus, I just, I thank you for redemption that you have brought into Jen's life and that you are bringing into her life. And we grieve the, the pain that she suffered and we, we praise you for what you are restoring. So would you continue to bless your daughter as she walks this road of, of forgiveness? Lord, would you bless her to be um, just a beloved sister in our congregation and a beloved spiritual mother to um, especially younger women in our congregation. Thank you for her ministry to us this morning. Amen. Thank you, Jen. I mean, as, you, as you hear in that story, sometimes forgiveness is relatively simple and sometimes it's very complex. Sometimes forgiveness is as simple as you remember the hurt that someone has caused you and you just say over and over again, I forgive you, I forgive you, I forgive you. I release this person from that wrong they did to me. But sometimes that hurt is complex and you need help and it's totally okay to need help forgiving somebody. And so if, if this morning, if you feel like the hurt is just, you just feel stuck, you feel like this door is just locked, you can't imagine having a testimony like that of learning to forgive someone, especially someone close to you, then please seek help. And, and as pastors, we would love to assist you and pray for you and resource you in that work. And there is, there is a wonderful role for therapists to play in just helping identify those unhealthy patterns or those sins, those wrongs that have been committed against you where you might just not have a clear idea of that. And it's a wonderful resource. Um, you might need a, a spiritual director, somebody who can just pray with you to help you bring those pains to the Lord, right? And so as Jen just modeled in her story, she solicited help from others. And that is how the grace of the Lord came into her life. Forgiveness probably isn't something you can always, uh, with a complex pain, it's not something you can just will yourself to do. But let the church love you, help you, serve you, so that the grace of Jesus can flow into your life. The way of the king is the way of scandal, the scandal of shame, of strange company and of scandalous mercy, but it is also the way of life. And if you can see and believe what our King has done for you, then you can see and believe that the cross is worth every scandal. The way of the cross is worth every scandal. And if you can see and believe what our King has done for you, then see and believe what He will do for you when you meet him face to face and he welcomes you into a kingdom that is his and is now yours as well. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.
Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.